I was driving with my kids this morning. We were coming up to church, and uh, in my car, I've got one of those screens on it. It's a, it's a Corolla. It's not like a Tesla with a big screen or anything. It's just a Corolla screen. So anyways, it's got a screen on it, and I was playing a song. I had the Apple CarPlay going and everything, and I was, I, it was an old guy moment with my kids. I was like, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't. I, anyways, I was like, I didn't have this. I had this, like, small CD deck, and, and we used to have to make play t- playlists on iTunes that we could burn onto a CD, and I know my leaders in the room that may be a little bit older than me are like, whatever, we had eight tracks, we have tapes. Fine. We, anyways, we used to have to burn them on a CD, and then you put it in, and that's it, and that, that's all you had. Well, back in high school, I, uh, I remember being woken up by my dad early one morning. It was like 4 a.m., and we lived in an apartment complex, and my dad said, hey, PJ, you got to get up. Uh, somebody broke into your car and stole your CD player out of your car. And look, back in the like late 90s, early 2000s, like that was the chief offense anyone could, could do to you, is if they ripped off your, your, your deck from your car, that was a big deal. But I just remember the feeling that I had, which was just, man, that's not right, that, that somebody broke in and stole something that was mine, that belonged to me. Well, God desires that his people be joyful people. That's some of what we've been talking about throughout this entire study, right? Got joy. That's the theme. That's what Paul's been talking about. And he's going to return to that theme in our passage tonight. But the problem with it is even though God wants us to be joyful people, we live in a world that's looking to rob our joy at every turn. And one of the chief ways that the world robs our joy is through fear and anxiety, One of the most amazing things about the Bible that I find time and time and time and time again is that it's written by a God who knows those that he has created. And he knows that about us. He knows that fear and anxiety are two of the most horrible threats to our joy that that exist in this world. And it seems at times like those two things are waiting behind every single turn and under every single rock. Some of you know that. Some of you are here tonight with those feelings, those feelings of fear, those feelings of anxiety, that, that, that weight, that burden. And yet, the Bible addresses that and tells us how even in the face of that and in the face of the things that cause that, we can have joy. Philippians 4, and really we're going to be in verses 4 through 9 tonight for the majority of our time, is a text that's about it's about a lot of things. And most people make it about anxiety. Four, six, do not be anxious for anything. That's one of the verses that sticks out in people's minds when they think about Philippians. And so they may hear, oh, you're studying Philippians 4, 4 through 9, so you're talking about anxiety. But y'all, I don't think this is primarily a passage about anxiety. It addresses that, but it addresses a lot of other things too. I think what this is primarily a passage about is it's primarily a passage about how we fight for joy in the world in which we live. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. Like I said, Pastor Kellen brought us through verse 1 of Philippians 4 last week. Uh, we pick up and we'll start in verse 2, although I'm just going to have to glance off this interaction here, unfortunately. But Paul's dealing with these two women. He says, I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. In other words, these two women were having conflict. And Paul's been writing from Philippians 1.27 all the way through chapter 4, verse 1, about the unity that needs to exist in the church, about not uh, counting yourself more important than others, but the opposite. And and not just looking out for your own interest, but looking to the interest of others and and doing all things without grumbling and disputing. And, And now Paul says, hey, there's two ladies there that are present in this church, and there's discord there. And look, I'm asking you to help them resolve this, to help them 
get back to what they've been doing and what they've been good at, which they've been faithful laborers with me in the gospel. And, and Clement is another guy that he, he mentions there. He's like, they, they and Clement and all of the rest of the workers and all those whose names are written in the book of life. He's like, they're, they're, they're useful. And so get them back useful to the Lord. Let's, let's entreat them to agree in the Lord, to have that same mind, uh, being of, of one mind, of one accord. And so this is a reminder to us, again, that this is a letter written to a specific group of people, that this is not Paul writing some theology textbook, that this isn't Paul just writing a letter to a a group of people that he doesn't know and doesn't care about. Paul knows their names, and he's saying, hey, Judea and Syntyche, I I want them to, whatever their conflict is, look, they need to come together and be united together. And then he says, moving on from there, the verse that governs the rest of our text this evening, and that's verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always, again, I will say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, again, I will say, rejoice. Paul is ending the book, ending his letter, and he returns to a theme that he's hit two other times, at least in the letter with commands, telling us to rejoice. But he wants us to have this joy in spite of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says, in the last days, God has spoken to us by his son, by Jesus. 1 John 2.18, John says, children, it is the last hour. 2 Peter 3.3 similarly refers to the last days and what they will be like. Y'all, we are living in the last days. Does that mean that it's time to go chicken little and here comes the, the end time and the sky is falling and oh no, the Antichrist is coming and he's already here and who is it? Is it this person or that person? No. But it is important to realize what it, we mean by the last days is we're in the period between the time that Jesus ascended to heaven and the time that he comes back. That's the the biblical definition of the last days. That the only thing left on God's prophetic calendar between now and the end times is the return of Christ for his church. So we find ourselves right now in the last days. And the last days are are not a good time for the world, okay? The last days are are not a, a time period where the world is getting better, but where we see the world getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And so as we find ourselves in the last days, in the last time, and and Paul is telling the church at that time and is telling us by inspiration of the Spirit through the Word, now, hey, rejoice. You might be thinking, what? Rejoice? I don't feel much like rejoicing right now, Paul. Have you seen the world that we live in? Have you seen what's going on? Well, in this passage, Paul's going to tell us why we can rejoice. Paul was no stranger to opposition. In fact, consider these things that we've already encountered in this letter. Paul has said, hey, stand firm. I don't need to stand firm if, if there's no opposition in my life. If there's no, nothing to, to threaten my, my security, my, my standing, I don't need to make sure that I'm well grounded, right? He said, I need you to strive for the faith of the gospel. It involves labor. That involves effort. Well, if we're not going to face opposition, we're not going to have to put in much effort for the faith of the gospel. But the reality is we do. He's also said in this letter already, hey, don't be frightened by your opponents. So there Paul has admitted and acknowledged, hey, you're going to have opponents in your walk. He's also said, hey, do nothing from selfish ambition. Oh, yeah, there's an internal battle that we're going to have too. He's said the simple command, right? Have the mind of Christ. Okay. He's also said, do all things without grumbling or disputing. There's going to be discord and temptations to discord. 
He said, look out for the dogs, the evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. Again, there are going to be opponents that come at us and want to stand against us in our walk. Look out for those who, or rather, he says, let those who are mature have this mindset that, that looks at everything and is willing to count everything a loss for Christ. That, that countercultural mentality that's willing to give everything for the surpassing worth of Jesus. And then Paul said, join in imitating me. Remember, where was Paul writing Philippians from? The jail cell. And Paul's mindset from that prison cell, what was he saying? He was saying, you know what? Whether I live or die, if I'm going to live, that means gain. That, that, or that means, that means Christ. If I'm going to die, that means gain because I get to go be with him. And I, I want that more. And then he bookends it by saying again in chapter 4, verse 1, stand firm, thus in the Lord. So Paul has been preparing us for opposition in our walk. Paul's not been writing a letter that's like, hey, this Christianity thing is going to be easy for you. He's writing a letter to the church in Philippi saying, hey, you're going to need to strive together. You're going to need to be united in one mind because there's going to be threats that are going to try to divide you. You're going to need to have the mindset of Christ because the mindset of the world doesn't measure up. You're going to need to, to be willing to let go of everything for the sake of Jesus because following Jesus is going to cost you at times everything. But now he says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. Third time, chapter 2, verse 18, he said that we are to rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then here, chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. In this text that we're going to look at in the rest of our time, Paul gives us some of the most practical instruction of what that should look like in our lives. How, Paul, how do I rejoice in the Lord if I've got to be standing firm and striving and not being frightened by my opponents and I've got to look out to the interests of other people and I might lose everything for the worth of, of Jesus and, and I might, if I'm going to imitate you, Paul, it might cost me my freedom, it might cost me my life. Paul, how should I be rejoicing? Pick up in verse five as he begins to unpack this for us. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Here's how. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Paul starts by telling the Philippians, hey, you know what, church, just chill a bit, okay? Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. It's a word that, that has the idea of, uh, of being gentle, of, of being patient, of being temperate. Okay, you're not freaking out about every headline that comes across the news. You're not panicking when things don't go your way. You're not easily moved and, and, and swung on emotions up and down and up and down. And your reasonableness is evident in the midst of a, a world that's dark and, and, and crazy. You're not chicken little running around going, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Part of the key to developing this mindset, this reasonableness is realizing, guys, that a broken and fallen world is going to act like a broken and fallen world. And so some of the shock value needs to wear off on us as Christians when we see things that cause us to, to go, wow, that's really depraved. Yes, that's the point. That's why the world needs Jesus. For instance, the, the abortion law that just got passed in Montana, where human beings, human beings voted in Montana to uh, forbid doctors from rendering life-saving aid to a baby that had a failed abortion, meaning that, that the baby was born alive. People in Montana literally said, you know what? No, we don't want the doctors to save that baby, even though they could. We want them to let that baby die. 
Look, that may make your blood boil with a, a holy indignation over that, and that it should. But guys, we, we need to start letting the shock value wear off a little bit because this world is the world that's governed by the prince of the power of, it, of the air, right? Right now, as long as God is, is, is waiting, and he's waiting because he's being patient so that more and more will come to know Jesus, but in the meantime, the, the one that's, that's governing this world and its systems is the enemy. And a broken and fallen world is going to act like a broken and fallen world. And so our reasonableness can come through as we understand that. And Paul had that mindset. And that's why he says in verse 17 of chapter 3, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul's saying, I'm not thrown. I'm not thrown. I'm in jail. I don't know if I'm going to live tomorrow. I might die tomorrow. But Paul wasn't panicking, going, who's going to take over? Who's going to care for the churches? What are we going to do? Timothy, where's Timothy? Timothy, I've got instructions. I'm going to write you two letters really quick. Hold on. No, Paul was going, hey, you know what? If I die, I get to go be with Jesus. And, and actually, I'd, I'd rather go be with him. But if I live, and I think I will, man, it's going to mean fruitful labor for me. I'm hard-pressed between the two. But his reasonableness was there, right? And you know who else demonstrated a reasonableness? Even before Paul, and I think Paul probably learned it from him? Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 7 says this. Isaiah 53, verse 7 says, He, Jesus, was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Jesus wasn't going to the cross going, this is not fair, I'm innocent, what are you doing? He wasn't going to the cross going, hey, disciples, this is bad, I'm the Messiah, I'm not supposed to die, get everybody together, figure out what we're supposed to do. He wasn't going to the cross going, Father, this isn't right, do something different. He was reasonable, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so we can follow his example. What produces the reasonableness is what Paul says next in our passage, Philippians 4, verse 5. He says, the Lord is at hand. The return of Christ is at hand, near. You go, okay, whoa, well, this was written almost like 2,000 years ago, wasn't it, Pastor PJ? Yeah, it was. And that's where we need to remember that God's time frame is not our time frame. But we do need to soberly consider this. The very next thing that's going to happen in God's prophetic timeline is the return of Jesus for the church. Okay, so there's nothing that we're waiting for on that. That's what we mean by the imminent, meaning it could happen at any moment, at any time, return of Christ. And that's what Paul says allows us to be reasonable people because Jesus is going to come back and he's going to take us to be with him. And that's the better part, remember? I desire to, to, to part and be with Christ for that is far better. But the other thing that's going to happen when Jesus comes back is the wrongs are going to be righted. That which was an offense is going to be dealt with. So we can have confidence and we can trust in him. And that's, again, the example that we have in Jesus. 1 Peter 2.23 says, when he was reviled, 1 Peter 2.23, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Again, this is how we rejoice in the midst of the last days. This is how we rejoice even as we suffer. And it begins with a reasonableness that's governed by the reality that, that Christ is coming back at any moment. And so Paul says in verse 6, and here's the verse that we all think about, and here's the verse that we know so well, do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. 
What is anxiety? Paul's used the word for anxiety already in the epistle. When he said, I have no one like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That word concern, that genuine concern that Timothy had, that's the same word in the Greek, the same root word for anxiety. But that's a good kind of concern that Timothy has. It's a concern that doesn't produce fear or worry, but it's a concern for the welfare and the good of the church, okay? Anxiety is different. Anxiety is a concern that produces fear and worry. That's what anxiety does. Jesus talks about anxiety in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 24 in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 24 In this passage, he compares the creation to our own lives to help us see just the the foolishness at times of anxiety. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Does that sound familiar? Do not be anxious about anything. Paul wasn't original with that. Jesus said it first. Do not be anxious about your life. Don't worry about what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. Or your clothes, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. He goes on and he says, finally, in culmination, he says, rather than being anxious about these things, here's what I want you to do. I want you to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So this prohibition against anxiety is not original with Paul. It actually comes from Jesus. So lest we get frustrated with Paul, he's just parroting or repeating what what Jesus has already said. And he's telling us not to allow this concern that produces fear and worry to grip our lives. Do not be anxious about anything. How do I fight for joy in the, the, the last days? I have a reasonableness governed by the reality that Jesus is coming back, which is going to produce an ability for me not to be anxious about, what does Paul say? Not to be anxious about what? Anything. Anything. Again, the mounting pressures in Philippi against that church could have led and caused the Philippian believers to give way to the, this concern that yields worry and fear. But joining the, the, the midst of the last days means battling our anxiety by going after its root. And here's the root of anxiety. The root of anxiety is a false perception that we can control our lives. A false perception that we can control our lives. And it's also a lack of an eternal perspective. In other words, anxiety thrives when we zoom in. And, and when you zoom in, if you've ever taken a map and just kept going in and further and further and further and further, at first the map starts big and you kind of see the big picture of where you're at and you're like, okay, I, I have bearings. But the more you zoom in on a map and the, the closer and closer in you get, all of a sudden you lose perspective really quickly, don't you? If, if you didn't know where you were and someone gave you a map and it was ground level and it just showed the street you were on, that wouldn't do you very much good, would it? You need a bigger perspective. You need to broaden out. You need to zoom out so you can kind of be reminded, okay, now I know where I am in the big grand scheme of things. Y'all, anxiety zooms us in on our lives, 
on our worries, on our fears, on our concerns, on the things that produce all of those things. And the way that we can battle anxiety most effectively is by going after that and reminding ourselves we need to zoom out. We need to zoom out. Our first point tonight is this. Give up a zoomed-in sense of control. Give up a zoomed-in sense of control to zoom out and get God's perspective on life. My wife and I would remind ourselves of this all the time in college when we would have a midterm or an exam coming up or a big paper due and we would panic and we would be like, I'm so behind and, and I don't know what's going to happen. And if I don't pass this exam, then I'm going to fail the class and I'm going to be a failure in life. And, and we would just kind of come alongside each other and be like, hey, zoom out for a second. This is one exam, one class, one grade. Yeah, do your best, but, but let's gain some perspective here. And a lot of times when we zoom in, it's because we want to feel like we're in control of things. When I was in high school, I was a senior. I applied to a few colleges. I got into one called Rhodes College, and I decided I'm going to go to Rhodes College. It's a small liberal arts school in Memphis, Tennessee. And I decided I was going to go there. I was going to major in philosophy, and I was going to convert the whole school and make it a Christian school. Maybe a little bit hyperbolic, but I wasn't far away from that. My pride was pretty strong at the moment. And I thought I had my life mapped out. And y'all, I went to... Roads, and, and I was there for two weeks, and my parents dropped me off, and, and they left. Guys, I was crying like I was a third grader. I was on the phone nightly with my mom and dad. Mom and dad, I don't want to be here. I, I, don't, I don't know anyone. I, there's, I don't see any other believers here, Christians here. My roommate was wanting to join the whole frat scene and partying and drinking, and, and God crushed me with anxiety to remind me that I'm not in control of my life. So I, I left. It was kind of funny. I went, went into the registrar's class on the first day of classes. I was like, I need to drop my classes. She was like, which one? I said, all of them. She goes, we need you to see the school psychologist first. I was like, no, no, I'm good. I'm just done with this. I'm, we're, we're, I'm leaving. And I ended up coming home, and I ended up back out at Rhodes. And my life is far better, but it was a giant God grabbing me by the shoulders and going, you're not in control. I am, right? You guys been to Disneyland, right? You've been on Autopia? Okay. Now, Autopia gives my, my kids a sense of that, that they're in control of the car because they, they can turn the wheel and then, the, and oh, okay, we're about to turn left, turn the wheel to the left, and they'll do it and they'll go to the left. And they're like, whoa, I'm driving. Imagine if something went haywire and one of those cars just jumped the track and just started going all throughout Disneyland, like mowing down Mickey Mouse, like, I'm coming for you, Mickey. And the, the kids like in, behind the car going, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it you'd be keenly aware that you're not in control anymore, right? What do we do? This is the question that Paul's trying to help us answer here. What do we do in our lives when our cars jump the track? And all of a sudden, we are very keenly aware that we're not in control anymore. Those are the moments that make us anxious. Those are the moments that make us fearful. Those are the things that, that become anxiety-producing worry and fear in our lives. Paul gives us the answer to that in verse 6. And this is good news because it's not just, hey, you know what? Don't be anxious. Just stop it and move on. He keeps going. He says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. You know what the best way to divest yourself of anxiety is? Is to invest yourself in prayer. God's message to us, again, is not just when, when, we're, when we're anxious, it's not just, hey, stop it. 
And, and I think sometimes we feel that way. We get defensive when a Christian comes to us when we're battling with anxiety and says, well, the Bible says we shouldn't battle with anxiety. And, and we throw up our defenses and we're like, hey, who are you to tell me you don't know what I'm going through? But the Bible's message is not simply stop it if you're struggling with anxiety. It's giving you tools to deal with your anxiety. It's giving you resources to battle your anxiety. And the greatest resource you have is the spirit dwelling within you that gives you access to the throne of God to bring your concerns and your worries and your fears to him to receive help and grace in time of need. See, you've been given the answer to your anxiety, and the answer to your anxiety is prayer. And so you can bring all of your concerns to God. Which concerns can you bring to God? All of them. Why can I, I say that with confidence? Because what are you supposed to be anxious about? Nothing. That means you can bring everything to him. Psalm 55, 22, David knew this. He said, cast your burdens on the Lord, and he will sustain you. Cast your burdens on the Lord and, and he will sustain you. The way that we cast them is, is, is we bring those concerns to him and we acknowledge them before him. But y'all, this is easier once we recognize that he's the one in control. Because while we have still this, this sense, if we still are embracing the mindset that we are the captains of our ship, we will not be quick to take our concerns and our worries and our anxieties to Jesus. Instead, we'll try to do it on our own. And the anxiety crater just gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. There's four terms that Paul uses here to describe the way we should take our concerns to God in prayer. The first one he talks about is just prayer, which is just the general term that he uses all the time in his epistles for talking with God. It's, it's prayer. Okay, so he's setting the, the, the expectation there. But then secondly, with supplication. Supplication is a word that we don't use often, but it means to express our needs to tell God what your needs are, the things that you don't have that are causing you to feel the anxiety that you feel. And then he says, not just our supplications, but our requests. These requests are specific and intentional petitions. Not just saying, hey, God, here's my need, but also saying, here's what I'm asking you to do. I need you to meet this need, and here's how I'm asking you to meet it. But then there's one more thing that he suggests or commands, and that is that we pray with thanksgiving at the same time. This is a bit of a paradigm shift for us. My guess is those first three things we're pretty good at when we're nervous or when we're feeling anxious. We're pretty good at going to God and saying, here's everything that I'm feeling anxious about, God. Will you do something about it? But it's that last part of, of with thanksgiving that's also important for us. Because that thanksgiving, that's, that's remembering all of God's faithfulness to us up until this point in our lives which is going to be a balm and a salve for us as we're struggling with the anxieties, we're struggling with the fears, we're struggling with the worry, as we're struggling to find joy, to rejoice in the last days, as we're battling this stuff, it's so good and so important for us to remember how God has been faithful to us to this point. To remember his promises, to remember his goodness, to remember all the times that he's come through for us. That's why a great exercise for y'all, if you don't journal your prayers, is to start journaling your prayers, and then when they're answered, record the answers to your journal as well. That will be one of the greatest weapons you have against anxiety and despair in the future moving forward. For you to be able to pull out a journal from a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, and look at it and be like, wow, God is faithful. He answers prayers. So I wonder what areas of your life are bringing you the most anxiety tonight where worry has turned into, or concern rather, has turned into worry and fear. 
And I wonder how an unwarranted desire for control might be contributing to that. And what it might look like for you to entrust those areas to the Lord. We're not really in control of this. We've been reading in our DBR. And did you catch in, in, in the DBR, there were, there were two men that God called his servant in the Old Testament prophets that we've just come out of, Jeremiah and Isaiah. Do you remember the names of the two men? They may have stood out to you. First one is a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, God calls my servant in Jeremiah 27, 6. He was one of the most ruthless individuals on the face of the earth, and God is moving him like a chess piece to do what he needed him to do. Second man that he calls his servant is Cyrus. Cyrus, the king of Persia, is called my servant in Isaiah 44, 28. Even more specifically, he's called the Lord's anointed in Isaiah 45, 1. It's a reminder to us that God is in control. In Daniel chapter 2, you had this situation with, with the king's dream. And he had this crazy dream and he was going to kill all the wise men because none of them could interpret it. And Daniel went in and said, king, just give me a minute. Let me go talk to God and then I'll get back to you. That's my paraphrase on that. And he did and he was given the, this respite and, and Daniel confessed and acknowledged that God is the one who sets up kings and removes kings, who brings seasons in and takes them out. That's the perspective that we need to have. That's what, what is going to help us battle this fear, battle this anxiety. Giving up a zoomed-in sense of control. Y'all, when, when COVID first broke, like the, the, the big news started to hit, like canceling the NBA season, right? We were, uh, we were on a pastor's retreat, and we started getting uh, alerts on you know, our phones, on social media, and everything else. We were going, what in the world is going on? What do we do? We, we finished that retreat up. We came back to the church. And by that Sunday, we, we had shut down. That was like Wednesday, I think. And, and at the beginning of COVID, it was scary. And you guys probably remember that time, too. We didn't know what was going on. We knew that there were drastic statistics that were piling up, especially out of Europe and Italy. I, don't know, I still remember the early scenes of the lockdown in Italy with people hanging out their apartment windows and trying to talk to each other, and nobody could leave, and, and there was just this sense of fear going, is that going to happen here? And then somehow, the, the, the rest of the pastors looked at me and said, Pastor PJ, you're the COVID czar. <laughs> There's never been a title I wanted less in my life, okay, than that. But here's the deal, y'all. What that meant is I had, to, I had to read the news articles. I had to look at the statistics in Orange County every single day and look at the hospitalizations. And, and I'll just be honest with you guys. There, there was a, a battle for me with anxiety during a lot of that season. Because I didn't know. And then it's like, hey, should we keep the church open? Should we not keep the church open? Should we be singing inside? Should we not be singing inside? And then the, there was the, the relief of the shutdown. And then there was like the re-re-shutdown. And then nobody had any toilet paper. Like talk about being anxious. You don't have any toilet paper at home? You got five kids at home? Four of those are boys? 
No, but, but in all seriousness, I, there was a battle there until I finally got to the place where every single time I pulled my phone out to check the news headlines or to check the numbers, here's what I did. I literally said this. I said, okay, God, you are in control of all of this. You are sovereign over all of these headlines, all of these numbers. Help me trust you through this. And the result of that was I was able to engage with it and have a peace through it. And see, that's what God gives us when we bring our anxieties to him. It's what verse 7 says. It says, The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the result of us bringing our anxieties to God in prayer is that we, in return, receive the, the peace that surpasses understanding. A question for you. When you feel anxious, where does it hit you most? My guess is two places. My guess is it hits you internally, that you feel like your insides are all tied up in knots and you feel sick to your stomach and you just feel heavy. You feel like there's like just a, a foreboding sense of this is not right and you feel it inside. And then the second place, my guess is anxiety grips you, is up here in your mind. And that is as you entertain the thoughts and the what ifs and the if this happens, then, then oh man, then this is, this is going to happen. And then if this happens, then, and you just can't shake it. And then your mind spirals further and further and further out of control into fear and, and worry. God knows his people and knows his creation. Because look at what he led Paul to write in verse 7 again. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Where is it going to guard you? It's going to guard you internally and in your mind. It will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Y'all, that's not an accident that that is where the peace of God hits us. Because that's where the world wants to rob us of this joy that Paul's calling us to. That's where anxiety grips us and, and at times feels like it's got an iron death strangle on us. Is this internal relationship and then in our, our thought life. We feel like we're tied up, like there's this dark storm cloud over us. We can't calm our minds, and it's just this cruel, perpetual cycle. And, and here's Paul saying, you want to be free from that. Come to the Lord, bring your anxieties, bring your fears, bring your worries and your concerns to him. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm about to nerd out on y'all way more than I've ever nerded out on y'all, okay? Any of y'all ever read the Cimmerillion? No, none of you. Is that just a zero? I'm batting zero on this. Okay, awesome. It's the prequel to the Lord of the Rings. Have any of you guys been like, oh, maybe I should read the Cimmerillion one day? Okay, like one of you guys, two of you. Okay, I, well, true confessions, I'm not reading it. I'm listening to a podcast on it where a guy like, it's like a commentary for the Cimmerillion, which makes me even more of a nerd, right? But there's this guy, well, it's not a guy, it's a dog. It's a hound in the Cimmerillion I'm getting there. Hold on a second. And his name is Huan. Huan the Hound. Here's the deal. He's, he's legit. He's a beast. Because there's these two characters, and, and I think they're good guys. I, I'm, not, I'm not at that nerd level enough yet to be able to know 
who, like who the good elves are and who the bad. But they're fighting the bad guys, so I think they're the good guys. And one's name is Baron, and the other's name is, is Luthien. And, and they're in trouble because they're at, at the gate of Sauron. Now, if you guys have, have heard of Sauron, right? Okay, now we're tracking. I've got some nods. And the rest of you are like, why, why am I here tonight? <laughs> I just wanted to hear about not being anxious, and you're talking about Lord of the Rings. Sauron, so they're at the gate of Sauron, and Sauron's kind of winning the battle. Well, then Huon shows up. And, and they're wounded, and Luthien's not, but, but Luthien's got to help Baron. And Huon's there, and Huon stands guard, and, and Sauron sends all of these beasts, these werewolves. At, I'm hearing, I'm out of body experience right now, listening to myself, going, What are you thinking? <laughs> Huon's there, and all of these werewolves are coming, and Huon's just, just beating them down, protecting Luthien, protecting Baron the whole time. And then finally, Sauron takes the form of a, of, a, of a beast himself and comes after Huon, but Huon is even able to stand up to Sauron and turn Sauron away as well. And, and then he's able to take them and he, he takes them away to safety. Yes. Yes. So if you have a dog and you haven't named him yet, Huan is a great name for your dog. But y'all, we have the peace of God guarding, watching over all that to say, that's what that word guard is talking about there. The peace of God guarding, watching over, protecting your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And this peace begins to change the way that we think about our circumstances that are all about us. The peace begins to change the way that we dwell on things and, and not necessarily do our circumstances change, but now we are able to process them through a different lens. It changes our whole mindset and our minds are no longer set on things that make us anxious, but our minds begin to shift towards the things that God wants us to be thinking about. Second point tonight is this, fill your mind with thoughts that please God. If you want to fight for joy in the last days, if you want to have this freedom from anxiety, it begins with bringing our request to God. And then when we have this peace that allows us to then begin to think the thoughts that God wants us to be thinking about. And God will never give you thoughts that make you anxious. And the things that he wants us to think about, what are they? Well, Paul gives us a list in Philippians 4.8. He says, finally, brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Have you ever been to an old ghost town before that used to be like a gold mining town? Oh, for 2 on illustrations tonight. Fantastic. Well, if you do, you can have a chance to pan for gold there. Uh, not really. It's fool's gold. It's just stuff that the tourists play throw in there and, and you get to go out there. But the way that works is you dip it in, you get the silt, the, the dirt and stuff in the pan, and then you begin to, to, to shift the pan and shake the pan. And there's these holes in there that, that let all the, the bad stuff fall through until what's left behind is, is the, the pure stuff, the stuff that you want, the nuggets, the gold. We need to do that with Philippians 4.8 when it comes to our thought life. We need to sift our thoughts through Philippians 4.8. And What's going to be left behind are the things that are true, honorable, commendable, just, pure, lovely, excellent, worthy of praise. And those are the things that we want in our minds because those are things that aren't going to make us anxious and fearful and worrisome. Going through this list, the first one here is true. 
Think about what is true, okay? What does he mean by that? I could think about the fact that the sky is blue. I could think about the fact that the grass is green. I could think about the fact that two plus two is four. All those things are true statements. That's not the truth that we're talking about. The truth that he wants us to be entertaining are are the, the true thoughts about God. Thoughts about the God of truth. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The truth that he is God, the truth that he is creator, the truth that he is good, the truth that he is holy. Those are the things we want to be thinking about. We want to think about what is true as it relates to him. Second, we want to think about that which is honorable. That which is honorable. Noble thoughts. Good, pure thoughts about God. That he is sovereign. And that being sovereign and being good, that what he is doing in my life right now is good. That is a noble thought about God. That is an honorable thought about God. Just. The word for just here is the same word in the Greek that translates righteousness in other contexts. So we want to have righteous thoughts, which goes hand in hand with the next word, pure. Righteous and pure thoughts, that there aren't any evil thoughts that are hanging out in our, our mind, that you haven't given prime real estate in your thought life to anything that is immoral. And y'all, here's the, the thing. This would be a good opportunity for you to take a perimeter check on your life when it comes to the entertainment choices that you're making. When it comes to the things that you're taking in, did you guys know that binge watching the wrong shows on Netflix may have a direct correlation on why you're so anxious about life right now? Do you know that that taking in garbage in music that you're listening to may have a direct correlation as to why you are paralyzed by fear and anxiety in your life? Because that's impacting what you're thinking about. You're not doing your part here in guarding your mind. Titus 1.15 says, to the pure, all things are pure. Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So we're to think about the things that are pure. Also, the things that are lovely and commendable, and I put these two things together because it's com- communicating a lot of the same thing. And, and this, is, this is like if your, your, your thoughts were put up on a, a broadcast for just people in the world to see. What would they think? Would they think that they're lovely and commendable thoughts? And I don't mean world in the bad sense. I just mean like if your grandma knew what you were thinking about, would she be like, oh, that's lovely? And then excellent and worthy of praise, it's the same concept, but if God were to see your thoughts, which he does, by the way. So that list, right? That's, that's what we are to be filling our minds with. That's the other way that we're fighting for joy and battling anxiety is making sure that our minds are set on these things. And so we take the grid and we put it in place and we let anything that's not that just pass through so that what's left are the things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. And that those are the things that we're turning over in our minds, not the fears, not the what ifs. Anxiety thrives on the what ifs. but we need to fill our minds with these things. Here's the reality though, guys, that's hard work. If you are lazy in your thought life, don't expect to find the peace of God quickly accessible. It is hard work that requires discipline. 
on a regular basis to, to entertain your thought for a moment and say, do I need to be dwelling on this or should I get rid of this? Recognizing we're not in control of our lives, dwelling on what God loves. And finally, the way that we fight for the joy in our lives is we begin to do what we know God wants us to be doing. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, he says, What you have received, or rather what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Do them. And the God of peace will be with you. This isn't the first time Paul's commended his own example. We've talked about the other one in 317. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. This isn't Paul being arrogant or cocky. This is Paul being confident in the Lord. Paul knows that, that the life that he has lived since his conversion, he knows the benefits that he's experienced in that. Not benefits in the sense that he's healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Because he's not. He's in a jail cell and he just told us earlier in the letter, indeed, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. But Paul knows that he, in being obedient to the Lord, is exactly where he needs to be and that the benefits that he has in that faithful pursuit of obeying God far outweigh anything the world could offer him. And so as we're fighting for joy in the last days, it's this commitment and this resolve to say, you know what, I am going to set myself to do that which I know that God wants me to do. It's our third point tonight. Do that which you know is right. Do that which you know is right. Have you ever heard someone say the safest place to be is in the center of God's will? Maybe not. Well, now you have. And it's a cliche that, that Christians throw out there. Like when you say, how are you? Well, I'm better than I deserve. Okay. Well, I'm going to go talk to somebody else now. <laughs> but there's truth in the statement, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. To say, man, I, I, I don't, if I'm obeying God, bring it. Jesus said, don't fear somebody who can just kill you. He said, fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And so I want to be obedient to him because my fear of him needs to be greater than my fear of men. And you know what? If my obedience to him puts me in the crosshairs of the world, I'm still going to be okay. He did that with Paul. And Paul was okay. Sometimes we give our, our kids a list of, of chores to do before we leave, and we, we assign them to them. And we're like, hey, we want you, know, you to do this, and 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 you to do this. I think that's fine. And we, we leave, and then we come back, and, and sometimes four out of the five have done what they need to do, and there's one who didn't. Well, guess what? The four out of the five who did what they were supposed to do, they're fine. But the one who didn't, he's not so fine anymore. See, the four out of the five have nothing to fear because they did what was asked of them. They did what they knew what was right. Y'all, Jesus is coming back for his bride one day. What are you going to be found doing? Are you going to be found doing that which is right? Paul's saying, do what you know you should do. Do what you've learned, what you've received, what you've heard, and what you've seen in me. Live that out. Don't just be hearers, but be doers. Do that stuff and you'll be fine. You won't have anything to be anxious about. Y'all, this is a, a, another element that can help us in our battle with anxiety. Because if you focus on going, okay, 
I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring me, but I know what I'm supposed to do right now. And you can focus on that, and you can give your mind to doing what God wants you to do, whether that's praying or going to sleep, which is sometimes another weapon against anxiety. Go to sleep, right? Put the phone down. Delete the social media. Right? Do those things that, that, that you know are going to be pleasing to the Lord. And notice the, the promise there. Practice these things. What, it say, what does it say in the rest of the verse? Practice these things and the God of, what's the word? Come on, come on. I was out, did Pastor Kellen not do any responsiveness with you guys? You guys are out of shape. The God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. You want the God of peace with you, I assume. How do I get God, the God of peace with me? You practice these things. You do what he wants you to be doing. Joseph. Think about the story of Joseph. Not Lopez. Joseph from the Bible. His brothers take him. They, they sell him into slavery. Slavery. He ends up in Potiphar's house. Everything is going much better than he expected. And this has worked out really well. I was in a slave, and, and now I'm here. Could have gone much worse. And then he encounters Potiphar's wife, who's laying all seductive-like, and like, hey, Joseph, why don't you come over here? And he's like, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. She grabs his cloak. She accuses him of raping her. Joseph's thrown in jail. Joseph remained confident in God, even in jail, because... He trusted in the Lord. He experienced the God of peace who was with him because Joseph was doing what he knew he should be doing. Joseph was a man of integrity. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Nebuchadnezzar gathers everybody. Hey, I'm going to play this horrible music and you guys are all going to fall down and, and worship. And the music sounds and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stay standing. Nebuchadnezzar goes, get those three and bring them over here. And he says, maybe you are the deaf Israelites that we brought. So I'm going to give you a second chance. I'm going to play the music again, and you fall down. And they say, we don't, we're not going to fall down. And I see your fiery furnace. Do it. God can save us from that, and he will save us from you. Where did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego end up? In the furnace. And when they were being bound to be thrown into the furnace, did they know they would make it out? When they were being carried up to be thrown in the furnace, did they know that they were going to survive? When they were falling into the flames, did they know that they were going to come out without the smell of smoke on them? The answer is no. They didn't know any of that. They knew fire to be exactly what you and I know fire to be. And they knew fire to do exactly what you, know, you and I know fire to do. And yet they knew that it was safer and more peaceful to be following the Lord than to compromise. Daniel in the lion's den. The king issued a decree, you shall pray to no one or worship no one other than the king. Daniel knew the decree had been signed and went up to his room and he bowed down and he worshiped as he had always done. And, and the, the, the bad guys saw him doing that and they said, look, Daniel ignores the decree. You have to throw him in the lion's den, king. As Daniel was being carried to the den with the ravenous lions, hearing their roars and their hunger and their sound, did he know that he was going to survive? As the men were lowering him or throwing him into the pit, did he know that he was going to reach the bottom without them tearing him to shreds? 
did he know that this was not going to be one of the most painful deaths that he could experience? The answer is no, he didn't know any of that. He knew lions just like you and I know lions. Probably more intimately than we do. And yet he didn't compromise because he knew that the right thing to do was to to faithfully obey God. And he trusted him no matter what would happen. Paul and Silas in prison in Philippi, beaten, suffering from their wounds, put in jail in in the inner part of the jail, essentially with a death sentence. Did they know that the earthquake was going to come as they were singing the hymns? Did they know that the earthquake was going to free their shackles as they were singing the hymns? Did they know that the, the, the other prisoners were going to stay with them? Did they know that they were going to interact with the Philippian jailer? Did they know that the Jews weren't going to just cause another riot? Did they know that the Romans weren't going to just throw them back in jail? No, they didn't know any of that. But they refused to compromise because they knew what was better was to obey the Lord. And they had a peace. We don't see an anxiety in Joseph. We don't see an anxiety in Rakshak and Benny. We don't see an anxiety in Daniel. We don't see an anxiety in Paul. And I'm not telling you that they didn't have their moments. They may have had their moments. But the, the common thread that we see through all of them is a, an abiding trust in God that enabled them to rejoice in the midst of suffering because they knew the God of peace who was with them because of their faithful obedience to him. We waste a lot of time and effort talking about what we're anxious about that could be spent thinking about, okay, God, what do you want me to do right now? What would you have me do right now? What am I supposed to do in the areas of purity? What am I supposed to do in the the areas of morality? What am I supposed to do with evangelism, God? What am I supposed to do as I wait for Christ's return? What am I supposed to do during trials? What am I supposed to do with disappointment, God? What am I supposed to do when I grow anxious over something. If we're going to do that which we know is right, we have to know his word. We have to know his word. We have to heed the, the call of James to be not just hearers of this, but doers of it. Because this gives us these answers. We can start here and we can say, okay, what, what should I be doing right now? What does it look like for me? I'm going to suggest if you're battling anxiety, a great place to be is in the Word of God. A great place to be is in the Word of God and in prayer. A great place to be is in the Word of God and in prayer and with your brothers and sisters in Christ. If I'm anxious and not praying, I'm not going to be focused on this third point, what God wants me to do. But if I take my anxieties to Him and I fill my thoughts with the things that please him, then the natural overflow is going to be causing me to live out my faith and to, and to want to do the things that bring him joy. Philippians 4, 6 has been a, a Christian band-aid for many over the years. Oh, you're anxious? Don't be anxious for anything, the Bible says. But it's only part of the message. This isn't primarily about anxiety. Although we've talked a lot about that. I'll talk about that in your your small groups too. But it's governed by this command in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord. Always, again, I will say rejoice. This is about a joy that endures. It recognizes the one who is really in control. 
It's a joy that, that dwells on and fills our minds with the thoughts that are pleasing to the Lord. And it's the joy that seeks obedience because we know that that is the safest place to be. This is how we fight for joy in the midst of the last days. Let's pray. God, we are, are thankful that you are a God who hears our prayers, that you are a God who has not left us on our own. That grateful, God, that the message is not simply, hey, stop being anxious. I'm thankful that the message is, you can come to me. You can bring your requests. You can bring your fears. You can bring your concerns. You can bring your burdens. You can bring your worries. Lord, I'm thankful that you are and have revealed yourself to us as our Father, that you love us like that. And I know God as an imperfect, sinful Father. When my children come to me with their fears and their worries and their concerns, I want to comfort them. And Lord, you desire the same thing. And even tell us in the passage that we just studied that if we will come to you with our fears and our anxieties and our concerns, you will give us the peace that surpasses understanding. Because the reality is our, our circumstances may not change. It's not like a, a genie in the bottle to come to you in prayer and all of a sudden the things making us anxious go away. They may still be there. But we've zoomed out and understood that you are in control. And by coming to you, and exercising that dependence upon you, you're pleased with that and you give us that peace. You allow our minds to be saturated with the thoughts that please you, which in turn allow us to live a life of obedience to you. That gives us the right perspective on the things that make us worried and anxious because we get to zoom out and see them from your perspective and not from ours. I know, Father, in this room there's a lot of weight. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of concern. There's a lot of fear. And I just pray that this message would be an encouragement for any that are there to know that there's hope, to know that, that you understand that, that you as our creator understand even how anxiety grips us internally and grips us in our mindset, and that you've promised a, a peace that will guard us in our hearts and guard us in our thought life. Lord, I, I pray that tonight would be an encouragement for these students, any of them battling anxiety, to bring their concerns to you, to literally to sit down and write them out and to, to, to list them off before you, to bring their petitions, to bring their requests, 